Masters in Business is brought to you by PropperCloth, the leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit PropperCloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I sit down for really a, a fascinating conversation with Yuval Noah Harari. If that name sounds familiar, he is the author uh, of a book on human history called Sapiens. I can't begin to tell you how many people have raved about this book, and whether it's Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg uh, or, or Danny Kahneman or go down the list. I've had a number of guests when we get to the book segment. That's that's the book they, they recommend. Uh, it's it's really a fascinating history and, and a very counterintuitive history of the development of the human species and why we have succeeded so well. It, it isn't necessarily our intelligence. It isn't necessarily our adaptability. According to Harari, it is our ability to cooperate with each other and to tell stories. Myths and stories are at the core of what allows human cooperation to succeed. It's a fascinating conversation. Uh, we talk about his new book, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, which I have not yet read, but the people I know who have read loved it. And so it picks up It picks up where the last book left off. I think you'll find this really a fascinating conversation. We He's in the midst of doing a, a, a nationwide tour. They're creating a documentary film or, or some sort of a series on this. So we got him in and out in less than, than an hour. So this is a relatively fast show. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with Yuval Noah Harari. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is author Yuval Noah Harari. You should know his name, and if you don't, you will soon. Uh, Harari specialized in medieval history and military history, studying at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He completed his doctorate, of all places, at Jesus College in Oxford, and he is the author of two of the most fascinating books you will come across um, in the next few years. Uh, his first book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, was one of those books that very quietly caught an audience. It was on the summer reading list for Barack Obama and Bill Gates. That's all it really took for the book to go viral. His new book, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, comes out shortly. Yuval Noah Harari, welcome to Bloomberg. Hello, it's good to be here. I'm fascinated by your book and a quick story. I read, was reading a book called Last a Ape Standing, and it was really hmm. a, a good name Darwinian history of humankind. And a friend said, how are you enjoying that book? I said, I'm, I'm liking it. He goes, I have a book you're going to love. And he was right. He gave me Sapiens. I love the story. I love the background about this. But let's, let's jump right into a little discussion of, of Homo sapiens. A hundred thousand years ago, Homo sapiens were just one of a number of different human species, all competing for supremacy. Today, Homo sapiens dominate the planet. What made Homo sapiens so different and so successful? Well, we are the only mammal that can cooperate in very large numbers and do so very flexibly. Mm -hmm. We tend to think that uh, our superiority comes out of some individual ability, like we have a we are smarter than everybody else or whatever, but on the individual level, we are not superior to chimpanzees. Our real advantage is the unique ability to cooperate in very large numbers. If you cram 100,000 chimpanzees into Yankee Stadium or into Wall Street, mm -hmm. you get chaos. You cram 100,000 humans there and you get very sophisticated networks of cooperation. And all our achievements are based on large-scale cooperation. Now, what made this possible why are we the only ones that can cooperate in large numbers? It's because 
we are the only ones that can tell fictional stories and believe them. At the basis of every large-scale human corporation, you always find a fictional story about gods, about nations, about money, corporations, all kinds of things that exist only in our own imagination. You cannot convince a chimpanzee to give you a banana by promising him that after you die, you go to chimpanzee heaven and they receive lots and lots of bananas for your good deeds. Chimpanzees wouldn't believe that. So, Humans believe such stories, which is why we cooperate better than them. So the power of myth, the power of storytelling, is what led to human cooperation? Exactly. As I said, check any large-scale human cooperation, there is always some fiction at the basis. It's easiest to comprehend it in the context of religion, but it's the same with political and economic cooperation. Uh-huh. Uh, money is probably the most successful fictional story ever told. So why is money fictional? Because money has no objective reality. It's not like a coconut or a banana. Right. Um, its only value comes from stories that people tell about it. The I mean, consensus of this piece of paper has value and mm-hmm. that piece of paper doesn't. Exactly. It, that the group consensus is a fiction, in other words. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that fiction is wrong or we mm-hmm. should stop believing in fictional stories. They are the basis of our society. But I am pointing out that it's all based on stories and our belief in the stories. If, if it were up to me, I would give the Nobel Prize in Literature to the chairperson of the Federal Reserve, not to the usual suspects <laughs> who, who get, the, get the prize. I still, I still like your concept of 100,000 chimpanzees in Wall Street. I don't know if the chaos would be any different than what we are actually- I think it will be much worse. Much worse. (laughs) So here's a quote about money of yours that comes straight from the book that I think is absolutely fascinating. And it puts the concept of faith-based belief in money into some context. The sum total of money in the entire world is $60 trillion. Add up all the cash, add up all the paper money and coins, and it's only $6 trillion. 90% of all money in the world exists only on computer servers. Therefore, money is a faith-based object. And even the six trillion that are in paper, I mean, the paper is worth nothing, really. You can't eat it. You can't drink it. So it it too is based on on faith. And even gold was based on faith, on, on, on belief, because you can't do anything with gold. I mean, again, you can't eat it. And it's a very soft metal. So you can't even make... Uh, useful implements out of it. You can't kill somebody with a sword made of gold. Right. Um, so it's really all based on trust. The real material from which money is made is not gold or paper. It's made of trust. It's the most sophisticated mutual trust system ever created. Uh, it's the only system, really, that managed to be completely universal. Not everybody believes in God, and not everybody believes, say, in human rights, but everybody believes in money. I mean, even if you think about, I don't know, Osama bin Laden, Mm -hmm. he hated American politics and culture and religion. He had no objection at all to American dollars. You reference that even something as ancient as the Roman Empire collected taxes at one point at their peak, they had 100 million people paying them taxes. Is that number right? A hundred million people paying the Roman Empire some form of taxation. Yes, I mean, you had a hundred million people in the empire at its zenith. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, not everybody pays taxes. You have family, so only one person pays. But generally speaking, yes, they collect the taxes from the entire Mediterranean basin, from tens of millions of of people. That's amazing. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Yuval Harari. He is the author of the book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, and let's jump right into this. And and there's so much in this book that is so fascinating and so counterintuitive, and yet when you think it through, you start to say to yourself, maybe maybe he's right. Let's talk about the agricultural revolution. Mm-hmm. Began around 12,000 years ago, and you say, surprisingly, the pursuit of an easier life leads to more hardship. Hmm. Now, I think of the pre-agricultural era as as short, nasty, and brutish. You never know when your next meal is coming from. You're, you're constantly at, at the uh, mercy of, of the weather, of, of other animals, of other bands. But 
I assume that agriculture allows you to have a home and a roof over your house, and mm-hmm. you're saying that just makes things worse. Yeah, for most people, it made things worse. If you're a king or a high priest, life is very nice in ancient Egypt. But if you're a simple peasant, life is actually much harder. Uh, first of all, as a peasant, you work harder than your hunter-gatherer ancestors. Our bodies and our minds evolved for hundreds of thousands of years in adaptation to living as hunter-gatherers, going to the forest to look for mushrooms or hunt, hunt rabbits. Right. And suddenly you find yourself all day working very hard on very monotonous and boring jobs, like bringing water buckets from the river or harvesting the corn. Uh, even today, you have hundreds of millions of people working in much more difficult and boring jobs than our ancestors uh, in the Stone Age. In exchange, you got a much worse diet. Hunter-gatherers ate dozens of different kinds of animals and plants and mushrooms and whatever, so they had a very rich and balanced nutrition, usually. Uh, peasants subsisted on a very monotonous diet. If you live in ancient Egypt, you basically eat wheat, unless you're a pharaoh. Uh, if you live in China, you eat rice for breakfast, rice for lunch, and if you're lucky, you have enough rice left for dinner. In addition, peasants suffered far more from infectious diseases because almost all infectious diseases humans suffer from actually came from domesticated animals. Really? Hunter-gatherers had very few infectious diseases. There were tiny bands roaming around, not enough to, to sustain an epidemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start seeing epidemics of infectious diseases only with agriculture. And if this is not enough, peasants suffered far more from social exploitation and political inequality than hunter-gatherers, uh, inequality both between classes and between genders. So I'm not saying that life was paradise as hunter-gatherers. You had many difficulties. But all in all, the life of the average person got worse instead of better as a result of the agricultural revolution. Only around the 19th century, you begin to see real improvement in the life of the average person. And even today, as I said, there are hundreds of millions of people around the world whose life is much more difficult and much more grim than the life of hunter-gatherers uh, 20,000 years ago. I'm also fascinated by the book. I didn't realize it was first published in Hebrew in 2011. Yeah. And then it didn't come out in English until 2014. What, what was the process? How did it go from a, a Hebrew book to something that was published now globally? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I rewrote it in English. It's not really a translation. Mm-hmm. It's uh, rewriting it. Um, and I changed many of the examples from things from Israeli and Jewish history to things with more international familiarity. I used, I got a lot of feedback mm-hmm. from the Israeli audience about all kinds of things in the book. So I had the opportunity to change things and update things. And I had to find a publisher, which wasn't easy. Uh, so it took three years to, to make the transition. Really? And now it's, uh, we have something like 50 translations all over the world. That, that's, quite, that's quite fascinating. You, you mentioned agriculture lead, led to communicable disease because you have people working close together. What about the rise of cities and urban population centers? We always think of that as a positive, or at least historically that's been portrayed as a positive. Mm-hmm. Look, we have culture, we have learning, we have knowledge. You're saying not so much. Well, that depends on your viewpoint and on your metric. If your viewpoint is, say, I don't know, the upper class in Athens in the 5th century BC, and you measure progress by uh, the sophistication of your philosophy or your theater, Mm -hmm. then yes, it was an amazing development. But if you think about it from the viewpoint of a slave woman uh, working to death in some field that belongs to Socrates, then it looks a bit different. To say the very least. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about cognitive dissonance, one of my favorite phrases. I always think of that phrase as a um, a negative of, of somebody who is so wrapped up in their own bubble, mm-hmm. they can't get out of their own way. But, but again, very counterintuitively, you describe it differently. Quote, cognitive dissonance is often considered a failure of the human psyche. In fact, it is a vital asset. Had people been unable to hold contradictory beliefs and values, it probably would have been impossible to establish and maintain any human culture. 
Explain that. that. That's quite an interesting assertion. Well, in contrast to the laws of nature, uh, which have no contradictions, humans have not been able to come up with any system of laws or values or, or views which is completely coherent and consistent. Mm-hmm. So unless we had this ability uh, of cognitive dissonance, uh, we could not have had any culture or any uh, uh, human, uh, human-generated uh, uh, code book. And to give a, f- a few examples, if you think, for example, about the monotheistic worldview, Mm-hmm. So people believe in a single, all-knowing and omnipotent God, but somehow they also manage to believe in an independent Satan or devil right. and to blame the devil for all kinds of bad things that happen in the world and exonerate the all-knowing and all-powerful God. Now, this is a contradiction, but people do it. Similarly, in, in, in today's culture, if you go to a hospital or if you go to the Department of Biology, then humans are basically these biochemical machines, mm-hmm. and there is no such thing as free will in today's biology. But then you leave the hospital or the biology department, and you go to the law department or to the courts, suddenly free will comes it's- out of, of, of nowhere, and our entire legal system is built on the assumptions that, yes, of course, humans have free will. How and- else can you hold them responsible for crimes and other bad actions? Exactly. No free will? And There is a contradiction there, mm-hmm. but um, we kind of manage to go away around the contradiction and we think in different ways when we are in the hospital or when we are in the courtroom. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Yuval Noah Harari. He is the author of two highly regarded books. The first is called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. The next is called Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. We were talking earlier about how gold isn't especially valuable intrinsically. You can't mm-hmm. eat it. You can't wear it. You can't use it as a tool. But some of the things you reference in, in some of the books are, are quite fascinating. The first was that the fact that Mediterranean people believed that gold had some value ultimately led to Indians and Africanas believing that gold had some value. How did that mechanism work? Well, um, in order to believe that something is valuable, it's, you don't need to believe it yourself. It's enough if somebody else believes in it mm-hmm. because you know that you can trade it uh, for things that you consider valuable. If suddenly, I don't know, aliens from outer space would invade Earth and it turns out that they have, there is a huge market for onion pills mm-hmm. on their planet Immediately, the price of onion peels on Earth will skyrocket. Right. We, can't do, we don't need these things, but we can sell it to the aliens and get in exchange, I don't know what, uranium or, or, or robots or whatever they produce. So suddenly, you have reason to value this. And this is what happened with gold in many places when Europeans, for instance, reached America or, or Polynesia. So some of the local people, they just couldn't understand why I, are these strange white people so obsessed with a nice shining metal, but that you can't really do anything with it. So, so once trade connects two different regions, the supply and demand naturally leads to prices equalizing. Is that pretty much uh, what happens? Pretty much, yes. So, so let's jump a little bit towards your, your writing process, because I'm, I'm fascinated. The, the book Sapiens is a serious piece of work that looks like there was an immense amount of research and thinking that went into it. How does your your writing process begin? How did you start? How did you conceptualize the book initially and what led to it? Actually, I it came out of a course that I gave in the Hebrew University. As, as a professor? As a professor to first-year students about trying to summarize the whole of history uh, to first-year students. And uh, I gave it for several years, mm-hmm. and I had the opportunity to test all kinds of ideas on the students and see their reaction. Uh, if they were very bored, then I understood, okay, something is I should change something here. <laughs> Instant they, feedback. Yeah, if they ask a lot of questions, maybe I should talk more about this issue. If something is unclear, I should find an example or some other way of explaining uh, this difficult point. I generally think that, at least in history, Um, if first-year students cannot understand what you're saying, 
you're probably either you don't understand yourself what you mm. try to teach them or you are saying it in the wrong way I mean I don't know in, in, in quantum mechanics it's not the same right I mean there are good reasons why even very good ideas you cannot explain it to first year students but in history I think it almost all cases uh, you should find a way to be able to 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 explain it to first year students H- how long did it take you to write sapiens um, either the first or the second time um yeah Uh, the Hebrew edition it took me like six years or mm-hmm. so and then you had another two years for the English edition mm-hmm. and it I know people who when they write they'll do all their research for two years and then they'll sit down and write and other people research and then write and research and then write and what was your what was your process like it sounds like you were pretty interactive pretty dynamic yeah, it was very dynamic and interactive it was not like okay I'll read all these books and And then I'll sit for one year and just write it down. It was very interactive and, and fluid and changing all the time. And Homo Deus seems almost like Sapiens Part Two. Mm-hmm. Here's the history looking back. Now let's look forward and try and imagine where this leads to. Yes. Is that how that was conceived? And, and when did you start thinking, hey, I can continue this, this process? It actually also came about in an interactive manner because after I published Sapiens, I gave all these interviews and went and gave these talks and seminars. And in many places, most of the questions were actually about the future. Uh, it was like, okay, you now wrote a book about the whole past of humankind. What can you say based on that on where we might be heading to? to? So my thinking went more and more to the future. And I began to give uh, talks and to write articles more about the future until at one point I said, hey, actually I have here enough material uh, for a new book. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Yuval Harari. He is the author, most recently, of Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. And, and let's jump right in because this is really a, a fascinating discussion. I want to start with a quote. Science knows surprisingly little about the mind and consciousness. Why is that? Because uh, the only mind you can observe directly is your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, in science, if you investigate any phenomenon, it's very important to have direct observation of it. If you write about Samoan culture, People will tell you, okay, go to Samoa and, and investigate it for yourself. If you write about business, it's good if you can observe business people or right. have direct business experience. But with the mind, you just can't access the mind of anybody except yourself. You can access the brain, but the brain isn't the mind. The brain is all these synapses and neurons and electrochemical reactions. And scientists assume that this is the substrate for the mind, but it's not the mind. The mind is the subjective experiences, the experience of love and hate and joy and pain. And you can see the behavior of other people, but you can't feel the love or the hate that somebody else feels. So if you want to research that, you can only research your own mind. And this is extremely difficult because you can't... It's very difficult to be objective and systematic when you try to observe your own mind. So let me push back on that a little bit because lots and lots of what we've been learning about the brain recently have been teaching us that much of uh, what we previously thought of as the mind is really mm-hmm. a combination of, as you said, biochemical reactions. We've seen in aphasiacs, People mm-hmm. lose the ability to read, but they can still write. They, get, they can't speak, some folks, but they can sing. And what we used to think of as part of the personality is really part of the biomechanics that exist. So, so let me ask a related question, mm-hmm. and I'll use another one of your quotes. There's zero scientific evidence that, in contrast to pigs— Sapiens have souls. So I have to ask the question, what is a soul and how can we, as you said, objectively measure it? Well, um, the soul, at least in the Christian version, is some unchanging essence, which is your true self, and it remains completely without change from birth to death and hopefully even beyond death. We have absolutely no evidence that such a thing exists. Uh, and it stands really in direct contradiction 
to the theory of evolution, which is why there is so much objection and hatred even to the theory of evolution, which no other scientific theory uh, receives so, so many objections and hatred as the theory of evolution. If you think about it, why? I mean, the theory of evolution is actually quite simple in contrast to other theories like quantum mechanics or, right. or relativity. But nobody has an objection uh, 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 um, teaching relativity to kids. Maybe the kids object, but, but no, <laughs> nobody else. Uh, so what's wrong with the theory of evolution? And I think that the, what really bugs people about the theory of evolution is that if you understand it, you understand that there are no souls because something unchanging cannot come out of an evolutionary process. Let, let me push back on that in two different ways, and I'm okay. fascinated by your description. First, if we go back to um, Copernicus and moving from the geocentric conception of the solar system to the heliocentric, mm -hmm. and, and even then it was the sun was the center of the universe, not just our solar system, the church pushed back fiercely yes. on it for reasons similar to what you're suggesting if you go to the Old Testament, if God created the heavens and the earth, then the earth is the center of everything, mm -hmm. and moving that to the sun changes it. But why would evolution, if it's merely competition amongst the fittest mm -hmm. and passing your genes along, and so we end up with a bigger set of antlers or a longer tail or more plumage or whatever it is, why would that change our conception of the soul? Because there are no genes for souls. Um, and it's, it's, if you really understand what soul means, then the idea that an everlasting, unchanging thing could emerge out of a small genetic change is extremely improbable. I mean, the big question is, when did souls first emerge in the process of evolution? Homo sapiens have souls? Did Homo erectus have souls? Did the ancient ancestor of, uh, of all humanids and chimpanzees have souls? When exactly was the magical moment when a small genetic change led to the emergence of an everlasting entity? So it's the pushback is, oh, you have it wrong. It was 6,000 years ago when mankind was created. And that's from whence comes all the anger you're describing. Yeah. Uh, again, if you subscribe to that, then... Uh, you can hardly argue with it from a scientific perspective. And, and again, I'm pulling a quote from your book, and I love this data. According to a 2012 Gallup survey, a mere 15% of Americans believe that we evolved through natural selection, while 46% believe that God created humans in their current form sometime during the last 10,000 years. And your conclusion is... This is why education has essentially zero impact on religion or creative belie creation beliefs. Fair statement? I wouldn't put it in, in such an extreme way in, in all cases, but it's certainly true that people's beliefs are far more influenced by their community identity and by the religious affiliation than they are by facts being taught in classrooms, either in, 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 in schools or in colleges. Uh, the idea that many scientists hold that we just need to tell people facts and this will change their beliefs, it doesn't work like that. In Homo sapiens, usually beliefs come before facts. Especially when you're talking about children who are usually given a religious education, in, in quotes, when they're too young to really be able to debate the merits, the pros and cons. It's I don't want to use the word indoctrination, but... You're, you're drumming something into a kid's head before they really have the capacity to objectively evaluate it. That, is that a fair statement? Yeah, and, and even more so, what we need to realize is that people think in stories, not in facts, not in numbers, not in statistics. We are a storytelling animal. And what's and, better than the biblical stories? Yeah, they, are the, they are the archetypes of all our literature and, and all our myths and all our storytelling. Yes, and, and, and you cannot fight a good story just with facts. It won't work. Uh, it almost never works. I mean, you know, with all the hype currently around post-truth and fake news and all that, I mean, fake news has been around for thousands of years. Just think of the Bible. Um, and the idea that, okay, we can fight fake, fake news with, 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 with facts... 
Um, history tells us a very different story. So let's talk about historical knowledge. I, I love this observation you have. Knowledge that does not change behavior is useless, but knowledge that changes behavior quickly loses its resonance. So explain that. Knowledge that changes behavior quickly loses its resonance. Relevance, how is that, that it could either be useless or quickly irrelevant? Because once the knowledge you have changes the way in which you behave, um, the world changes and your knowledge is no longer updated. I mean, the best example is what's happening in, in, in trade and markets and the stock exchange. Uh, let's say that you, that you predict that, um, I don't know, in one year, the price of oil will be $100 more than it is today. What will be the immediate result of that knowledge? Uh, the result will be that the price of oil will jump today uh, to, your, to the level you predict. And then it will change all the data and all the, all the calculations, and nobody knows what it will be a year from now. I mean, this is how predictions about the future change the present, and then the future becomes different from what you predicted. So you talk a lot about the future. You, you don't make such very explicit forecasts, but sometimes you paint a somewhat frightening picture. What do you think is going to happen in terms of robotics and the transference of human consciousness, mm -hmm. perhaps into machines? Does this mean... In the future, people might be able to live forever. What, what does that say about the future of, of humanity? Well, there is the science fiction version, mm -hmm. which um, usually says that computers will develop consciousness, and then you have the usual storyline of either humans falling in love with computers or uh, computers rebelling and trying to exterminate humankind. And this is like 90% of science fiction. <laughs> and this is not science. Because all these storylines confuse intelligence with consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, they are very different things, intelligence and consciousness. Intelligence is the ability to solve problems. Consciousness is the ability to feel things like joy and sadness and pain and pleasure. Um, now, we have seen amazing development in artificial intelligence but so far, there has been exactly zero development in artificial consciousness, and there is absolutely no reason to believe that computers are anywhere near developing consciousness. We have been speaking with Yuval Harari, discussing his most recent book, Homo Deus. Uh, you can find either Sapiens or Homo Deus in any of the finer bookstores or Amazon or on SoundCloud. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Hey, guys, let me ask you a question. Do you have trouble finding dress shirts that fit? Well, thanks to Proper Cloth, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. At propercloth.com, you can literally... Order a high-quality, perfect-fitting custom shirt in less than five minutes. Create your custom size by answering just 10 simple questions. No need for measuring tape or trips to the tailor. Perfect fit is guaranteed. Remakes are completely free, and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium-quality, perfect-fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom shirts made smarter. Welcome to the podcast. Yuval, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I, I've had Sapiens. Uh, I mentioned uh, I really enjoyed Last Ape Standing, which is what led me to Sapiens. And uh, the the book I was reading at the time is really very much an evolutionary uh, history of, of, of various primates and why were there 28 and where the survivor you took a very, very different approach, not a purely evolutionary approach. And I think people who, who are familiar with the book, and that includes people like uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and um, uh, I interviewed Danny Kahneman, and it was the book he recommended to people. Mm. Um, uh, Bill Gates, uh, the, the number of people um, who are highly regarded who recommends the book, Recommended the book must be deeply satisfying because you have a, a wonderful fan base. 
um, yes, it's it's fun when what you write suddenly reaches so many people. So so let's jump into our standard questions we ask all of our guests. Um, you have a, a, a historical background. You studied history yes. and then became an academic. Is that what you did before you started mm-hmm. writing books? Yeah, I was a specialist in medieval military history. Mm-hmm. And so your familiar, familiarity, familiarity, you can edit that, your familiarity <laughs> with the, the way the peasant class la- led their lives really comes from true history, not... Just a distorted uh, reading. Yeah, I, I think that um, as a medieval historian, I bring a kind of novel perspective to discussions about cyborgs and artificial intelligence and genetic engineering. That that makes a, that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, let's talk about some of your early mentors. Who influenced you early in your career? I had a very important influence from my supervisor in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. uh, Benjamin Kedar, who was also a specialist in the Crusades and in the Middle Ages, but who encouraged me to really think big about, uh, about history. Mm-hmm. Um, How do you go from, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated, from uh, Jerusalem, Hebrew University to Jesus College in Oxford? That's a... That's sort of an interesting juxtaposition between the two. No, well, you know, Jesus was in Jerusalem. So I, I guess he was. That, <laughs> <laughs> that makes, that makes, so you just basically said, all right, I'll follow. So I follow Jesus. There you go. You follow this path. Um, who influenced your approach to history? What other historians hmm. did you find um, really changed the way you looked at, at history? Actually, not just historians, but uh, people from other disciplines. I mean, there was Jared Diamond, sure. whose book, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, gave me, again, this, this, uh, this insight that you can actually write a very big history of humankind discussing the most fundamental questions of human existence from a scientific perspective. And Jared Diamond was originally a specialist in birds. Uh, really? I had yeah, no idea. An ornithologist. That's... And another big influence was uh, Franz Deval, who specializes in primates, mm-hmm. in chimpanzees and, and bonobos. And I read his book, Chimpanzee Politics, uh, and it, cha- it completely changed the way I understand not just chimpanzee politics, but also human politics. That, that's interesting. One of my favorite TED videos is somebody who works with um, bonobos and other chimpanzees. And if you uh, give them a task to do, and there are two chimps next to each other, or two bonobos in cages. Oh, with the grapes and the cucumbers. The grapes and the cucumbers. That's Franz Deval. Oh, that's him. That's, that's fascinating. Him. So you give one, one a cucumber for doing a task, and you give the other a cucumber, and they're fine. Mm-hmm. You give the first one a cucumber, and then you give the second one a grape. Cucumbers are essentially water and tasteless. Grapes are sweet and delicious. The first bonobo gets very upset at the lack of fairness, the yeah. lack of justice. That I didn't realize that was the person you were referring to. That's a fascinating TED Talk, and that's a wonderful video. Um, let's jump into uh, some books. We, you, you referenced um, Guns, Germs, and Steel. What other books have you read and enjoyed? What books have you used for research? Oh, uh, so many. Give, um, give us a few. P- by the way, the single most common question I get from listeners are, what, what books does your guest like? Uh, get from your, especially authors, hmm. t- tell me what they're reading because – People love a good book recommendation. We'll start mm-hmm. with two, Sapiens and Homo Deus, and that'll keep you busy for a couple of hours. Let, let's talk about some more. So a, a very big influence when I wrote Homo Deus was Danny Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm-hmm. Um, another big influence was Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Really? Which I think is the best science fiction book of the 20th century and certainly the most prophetic I mean, he was writing in the 1930s right. at the time of Stalin and Hitler and Mussolini. And he basically envisioned not a 1984 world of secret police and, and mm-hmm. Gestapo and things like that, but he envisioned a consumerist uh, society in which happiness is the highest value. And you try to, um, to change people with, uh, with drugs and with bioengineering. And uh, the really interesting thing about Brave New World is that in contrast to 1984, it's never really clear whether it's dystopia or utopia. Um, and I think it's, it's the most profound 
science fiction book of the 20th century. I wow. think it's also the most profound discussion of the themes of happiness and suffering that came out of the West in the, in the 20th century. That, that's a high bar, the most profound science fiction book of the 20th century, um, certainly in, in many people's top 10, to say the least. How about, how about something um, uh, nonfiction? Well, you mentioned uh, Kahneman. Mm -hmm. What else have you read that... What are you reading right now? That's always a good question. Right now, I'm actually listening, not, not reading, as an audiobook, mm -hmm. to a book called The Gay, Gay Revolution, Mm -hmm. about the history of uh, gays and lesbians in the U.S. from the 1940s to the 2000s. I'm now in the mid-1970s. Things are, are becoming optimistic a little. And the name of that book again? I'm, I'm trying uh, to see if I could get the author's name. Uh, the Gay Revolution. Uh, let's see who wrote The Gay Revolution. Uh, Lillian Faderman? Yes. The Story of the Struggle. Yeah. Oh, and that's a relatively new book. That just came out. Um, in September of the, this mm -hmm. past year. Quite interesting. So I assume you do a lot of reading and a lot of research. What do you do for relaxation? What do you do outside of the office when you want to just kick back a little bit? Well, I usually take my dog for a walk in the woods for an hour a day, mm -hmm. and I meditate. I do Vipassana meditation for two hours every day. Repeat it. What type of meditation? Uh, Vipassana meditation. Vipassana. Uh, which I learned from a teacher called Essen Goenka. Mm -hmm. And I go every year for a long retreat of 30 to 60 days of meditation. Really? Um, I just, I was in November or December, I actually heard about the Trump election only at the end of December because I entered the meditation retreat in early November and had no contact with the outside world until the end of December. Well, aren't you lucky? Um, <laughs> Vipa Vipassa, V-I-P-A-S-S-A? -S -S exactly, Vipassa. Vipassa meditation. Two hours a day, that's a lot of meditation. Um, I think actually, you know, um, for me, it's a, it's a way to really get in touch with reality as it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, to see what is really happening here and now. And uh, for almost all the day, I'm being distracted by emails and tweets and funny cat videos and whatever. So at least for two hours every day, I'm really in touch with, with reality. That, that, that's quite quite fascinating and you mentioned you take your dog for a walk for an hour a day if i have the time yes what what type of dog do you have a large mongrel from the street mm -hmm. who adopted us a few few years ago really that that's quite fascinating and where are you living these days are you here or are you still in no israel? i'm still in israel i live midway between jerusalem and tel aviv in mm -hmm. a small village which also is is kind of influences my worldview because I'm, you know, half thinking about Tel Aviv and all the high tech and all the these things, and right. half thinking about Jerusalem and all the religions and uh, and, low -tech. and the past and low tech. Yeah, and, and, and that, by the way, that hybrid between historical and religious um, thought and high tech and modernity is very much reflected in what you write. I, I'm certainly no book critic, but. It's clear that those are two major influences on your thought process, and that's a somewhat unusual hybrid. Yeah, I think I, I bring um, a lot of of, um, of thinking about religion and philosophy uh, to the discussion of what's happening in Silicon Valley. I think the most interesting place in the world, from a religious perspective, is not Jerusalem, it's Silicon Valley. Why, uh, why is that? that be, that's a fascinating comment. Uh, because this is where the new religions of the 21st century will come from, not from the Middle East. They will come from Silicon Valley. Uh, and from from such places. So I when think, you say when you say new religion, you mean Apple and Google and Facebook, yes. or that that those are our new deities. The, they the will tech produce. Gods? Yes, I think that they don't produce just gadgets and tools. They produce new ethics. They produce new new philosophies, mm -hmm. and eventually they'll even produce new techno religions. Uh, religions that prom that make all the old promises will give you prosperity and happiness and peace and eternal life. But here on earth, with the help of technology, not after you die, with the help of supernatural beings. Hmm. Uh, Professor Scott Galloway is at NYU, and, and he describes Netflix as the operating system of joy. Not that far <laughs> off from what you're referring to, the technology moving us into the next phase of uh of religious worship 
So within within the book, you discuss animals a mm. lot, how we've humanized animals, and a number of people have said, hey, uh, this book has made me want to become a, a full-on vegan. Mm -hmm. Tell us what we misunderstand about animals and about our relationship and role with them relative to... Uh, to, to the way we've managed to dominate the entire planet as a species. Um, You're well, a vegan, right? Yeah, I, I'm. I, I'm. I'm. I, I turn. I became vegan as a result of writing these two really? books. Really? Because all the research I've made about the agricultural revolution and then the industrial revolution made me realize the really terrible way that we are treating other animals. Um, it made me realize, first of all, that. There is now a scientific consensus that other animals, all mammals, all birds, they have consciousness, they have feelings, they have emotions, they can feel pain, they can feel fear, they can feel depression. It's not unique to Homo sapiens. And we are treating them in industrial farms as if they were just machines for producing meat and milk and eggs. And it's not just... Uh, you know, the slaughter of animals, mm -hmm. uh, how they live is really the worst. And it's true even more of the dairy industry than of the meat industry. Really? I mean, where does milk come from? Um, Living cows. But cows don't give milk to humans. The only reason a cow produces milk is because it first gives birth to a calf mm -hmm. and it produces the milk for the calf. Mm -hmm. So in the dairy industry, you get the cow pregnant then she gives birth to a calf. You take away the calf, slaughter it, and eat it, and then you milk the cow for all she's worth, and then you get her pregnant again and again and again until after five years she's completely worn down and she's also going to the, to the slaughterhouse. So the entire dairy industry is actually built on breaking the most fundamental emotional bond of the mammal kingdom, the bond between mother and offspring. This is the foundation of the dairy industry, to break the bond between the mother cow and the calf. All the milk is coming from there. And when I realized that... Uh, it's I, pretty horrific. Yeah, my gut instinct was that I don't know how to stop it, but I don't want to be part of it. And that turned you pretty much into a, into a vegan. Yes. That, that's quite, quite amazing. So our last two questions... Our, our favorite questions that we ask uh, all of our guests. Uh, you work with students. If, if someone who is a millennial or a mm -hmm. recent college grad were to come to you and say, I'm thinking about going into authorship or studying history or being a professor, and they come to you for career advice, what would you say to them? I would say to them that nobody has any clue how the job market would look like in 2040. Mm -hmm. um, so we really don't know what to teach the, the young people, whether in school or in college, in terms of careers. Uh, it's quite obvious that what, most of what they are learning will be completely irrelevant by the time they are 40 or 50. So they will have to reinvent themselves again and again and again throughout their lives, um, which is why I think the most important skill they must have is the ability to keep learning and to keep reinventing themselves throughout their lives, not to build this stable identity that will serve them from now until they die. They have to somehow um, find it in themselves, the ability to keep changing. And this is an extremely tall order because, you know, when you're 15 or when you're 20, your whole life is change. This, everything you do is just to invent sure. yourself. But when you're 40 or 50, usually you don't like to change very much. But you will have to in the 21st century if you want to stay relevant. And our final question, what is it that you know about human history, evolution, consciousness that you wish you knew 10 or 20 years ago when you began your work in this field? Um. I love the long, thoughtful <laughs> pause. That we actually know far, far less than we think.
we in terms of the human collective. Um, it's not that we've got the general picture and we just have a few islands of ignorance. It's just the opposite. We have an ocean of ignorance with a few islands that we know what's happening there. But the basic stuff, the really basic stuff, we still don't understand it. In particular, we are very, very far from understanding the human mind and the riddle of consciousness. And this is very dangerous because uh, in the 21st century, we are going to get these really amazing powers of manipulation, not just about the outside world, but also about the world inside us. We are going to get the power to manipulate, to engineer our own bodies and brains and minds. And the danger is that because we don't really understand the mind, we will misuse these powers. Uh, in the world outside, we've used our immense powers in such a way that now we are facing an ecological collapse. Because we, we, we knew how to control the forests and rivers, we didn't understand what this was doing to the ecosystem. The same thing may happen to the world inside us. We'll start manipulating our bodies and brains with very little understanding of what this is doing uh, to our internal ecosystem and the result might be a mental collapse. That, that's fascinating. Thank you, Yuval. We have been speaking to Yuval Noah Harari, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Sapiens, and the new book, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch, and you could check out any of the other 140 such conversations we've had on Apple iTunes. I would be remiss if I did not thank my recording engineer, Medina Parwana, my booker, Taylor Riggs, and my head of research, Michael Batnick. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Masters in Business is brought to you by Proper Cloth the leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.